on this episode of Blue 58. The Packers said goodbye to two players this week, one of whom you probably have a lot more feelings about than the other. Let's break down the departure of both Bashad Breland and Randall Cobb. Then a beat writer stepped in it with his description of the Packers' salary situation this week. What's up with that? Plus, the things you should know about the salary cap. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast to thepowersweep.com. I am your host, John Beardink. Excited to be with you here for yet another episode. Lots of stuff to talk about. So let's dive right into it. The Packers said hello to some new free agents last week. They are saying goodbye to a couple this week. First and foremost, Bashad Breland, who signs a one-year deal with the Kansas City Chiefs. According to Ian Rappaport, this is going to be a one-year deal worth up to $5 million. And boy, it sure seems like the Packers were straight up not interested here. But should they have been, I guess is the question kind of got a couple things going on here with the Bashad Breland situation. First, can the Packers afford to sign him? Well, if you ask Tom Silverstein, and we will a little bit later on, maybe not. The Packers probably have less salary cap space than they would like, although they could have probably gotten this deal done. It seems like if they really wanted to afford it, something could have been worked out, especially if the final price was $5 million. Should they have been interested first from a talent perspective, though? And then was Bashad Breland actually interested? There's a pro and the con on the the talent side. Per pro football focus, Bashad Breland was one of the five best corners over the last seven or so weeks of the regular season. Among players with a minimum of 100 snaps in coverage, Bashad Breland gave up the second lowest passer rating. Just behind Xavier Howard is Bashad Breland at 39.8. That was the rating for opposing quarterbacks throwing in Bashad Breland's direction from weeks 10 through 17. But other people who take a closer look at Bashad Breland don't particularly like what he offered to the Packers this year, or at least think he didn't. Losing him isn't going to take much off the off the table. Andy Herman of Cheesehead TV, who does in-depth study of each and every game, thinks this was a pretty good move for the Packers. Just They're not losing out here just by moving on from Bashad Breland. Even Pro Football Focus, who seemed to think he was pretty good down the stretch, didn't give him rave reviews. Here's what they said in their free agent profile of Bashad Breland. Breland's seven-game, 330-snap tenure in Green Bay wasn't spectacular. He logged one game grade above 90, week 14, but failed to stand out otherwise. So I think you could make a case either way. If you're inclined to keep Bashad Breland, you're probably not terribly out of line. If you're inclined to think they could probably do better and or cheaper at the very least, maybe you've got a case as well. So I think it may come down to whether or not Bashad Breland wanted to be with the Packers. Let's think about this for a second. If the Packers have their preferred group of cornerbacks, where does Bashad Breland fit in? Let's go down the depth chart. I think if the Packers had their druthers, Kevin King would be their top cornerback. So he's number one on the depth chart, and right behind him is probably Jair Alexander at number two. Assuming he doesn't end up at safety sooner or later, and right now it doesn't appear like that's going to happen, Josh Jackson is probably their number three corner. So one, two, and three, you've already got locked up there. And that, if you have two safeties on the field, takes you to five defensive backs right away. There's your nickel package. So right now, 
if everything is going to plan according to the or, or according to the plan for the Packers, Bashad Breland is what their number four corner. He's going to play dime back snaps. Not super ideal if you're hoping to cash in for another contract down the line. And Breland is certainly thinking about that, I'm sure, because in an ideal world for him, he's not going to sign a one-year contract. He wants a three or five-year contract or whatever, more than one year. It's more money. It's more security. He knows he can plan his life out accordingly. I don't have to spell that out for you. You understand why it's, it's better if you can have more years on your contract. So from that perspective alone, you, you kind of think maybe Breland might be less inclined to sign with the Packers. Then you've got the possibility that the Packers might be a little bit higher on Tony Brown long-term than Bashad Breland. Brown got quite a bit of burn down the stretch for the Packers in 2018. He does a lot of good things. He does some bad things, but he's a young, relatively affordable player. And the Packers probably are going to lean on guys like him more than they are going to lean on guys like Bashad Breland. Chances are, if you need a guy, a veteran cornerback, who can play your fourth or fifth cornerback spot, there may be more Bashad Breland types out there. As exciting as it was last year to see him return that interception for a touchdown against the Falcons, what else really stands out about what he did? Well, if you think back, just without even diving into the tape and grinding away there, to me what comes to mind is him being a little bit slow to get healthy, and be able to play. Watching him getting beat up a little bit against the uh, New Orleans, or the not the New Orleans, New England Patriots, and then just kind of disappearing a little bit for most of the rest of the season. He was competent enough, sure, but maybe that was just by comparison. As exciting as it was to have guys like. Jair Alexander play well for the Packers in the defensive backfield last year. I think it's fair to say overall they weren't that great of a group. Maybe Bashad Breeland just being competent made him seem better than he probably was. And taking a more sober look at it, perhaps the Packers should be trying to build a better group, one that doesn't depend on a $5 million dime back to kind of fill things out for you. And for that matter, if he is just going to be your fourth or fifth defensive back, what does he really do on special teams? Tony Brown is a hardcore special teams contributor. Surely the Packers would like to get more out of that spot than Bashad Breland was going to offer. So I think I've changed on this a little bit. Early on in this offseason, I thought, yeah, probably a no-brainer to have Bashad Breland back. Now I'm pretty okay with moving on. Sometimes you just think about things a little bit more and your opinion changes. Randall Cobb is a different animal. He signs today with the Dallas Cowboys. It looks like a one-year, $5 million deal. And that brings an era to an end in Green Bay. Cobb joined the Packers in 2011. He peaked in 2014 and more or less kind of petered out from there. Slowly kind of got beat up. Wasn't the player he was at his peak. But still, he offered quite a few exciting moments in Green Bay. And I think thinking about Randall Cobb makes me, I guess, kind of feel things because of maybe the era in my life in which it falls. His time in Green Bay, that is. From 2011 now through 2018, there's been a pretty pretty exciting run 
There's been a lot going on in the life of your podcast host here. And looking back and thinking about those Randall Cobb moments, I kind of tend to think of a lot of the places that I was along the way. Way back in January, I started writing a piece called The Top 5 Randall Cobb Moments for ThePowerSweep.com. Never got around to publishing it, but I still have my list of top five. So what I thought would be interesting to do would be to go back through those top five moments and think about where I was at, uh, at those times. Which is a little bit interesting in retrospect. Number five on my list, so we'll go five to one. Number five on my list is when Randall Cobb shredded the Cowboys in the 2014 playoffs, including a key catch late. I don't remember a whole lot of this game because in January of 2015 when this game was taking place, my grandpa was in the hospital. uh, And we ended up watching a a fair bit of this game at the hospital. Uh, He ended up having some surgery. Everything was fine, but, you know, it was uh, the first time that I had been through something kind of like that. And uh, that is what sticks in my mind about that game. Grandpa, if you're listening, I love you. Um, glad that you can tune into this and uh, that we can talk Packers and in, have been able to enjoy the Packers together for a long time. But that's what I think of when I think of that game. Uh, not that, that Des Bryant dropped it. Uh, not that Julius Peppers stripped DeMarco Murray. Not that Devontae Adams really had his... Uh, his breakout game there. I, I think of waiting for the surgeon to come and kind of give us the the progress report of what he thought he was going to have to do that day. But for Randall Cobb, uh, a great day, obviously, eight catches, 116 yards. The last catch, though, is really the highlight real one if you look back at this game. Third and 11, just at the two-minute warning, and the Packers really need to pick up a first down, otherwise Dallas is going to have a shot to do this right here at the end. Aaron Rodgers takes the snap, gets pressured from his right, sees Randall Cobb over to his right and tries to loft the pass to him, but the ball is tipped. Randall Cobb makes a great adjustment, snags the ball, 12-yard catch, first down, three more kneel downs, and the Packers are in the NFC Championship game. It's just a shame that nobody can remember what happened in that NFC Championship game, but that's number five. Number four was Cobb's debut against the Saints. I've been excited about Randall Cobb ever since he was drafted by the Packers. I can remember watching the feed of the draft come in over my laptop computer in my dorm room, sitting on my crappy couch that I bought on off of Craigslist for $7. i I'm still not entirely sure how that happened. I think it's just because we were willing to come and get the couch that we were able to get it for that cheap. But watching the draft play out, seeing that he had been drafted, and immediately being excited that the Packers had a player like Randall Cobb. Fast forward a few months later, I had gotten a job out of college and had pretty much burned out on that job pretty much immediately. By this point, by the first week of the 2011 NFL season, I was basically unemployed. I had quit my job. I was working in Sturgeon Bay, Wisconsin at the time, had quit the job, and had picked up a a side job, or I guess it was my main job at the time, selling vegetables from a roadside vegetable stand for straight-up cash. Yes, maybe not the most above-board operation there. Nine bucks an hour, straight cash, homie selling vegetables in Sturgeon Bay, Wisconsin. It was a long day that day because I had had to go get trained how to, you know, set up, you know, get the cash box out, stuff like that um, before I could watch the game. So I actually missed the start of the Packers-Saints game there. The first game of the season, 
I walked back into my really, quite honestly, no other way to put this very crappy apartment in Sturgeon Bay, just in time to turn on the game and see Randall Cobb return a kickoff 108 yards for a touchdown. Pretty exciting. Later in that same game, Randall Cobb catches a 32-yard touchdown on a play where he ran, actually, the wrong route. Pretty cool stuff and a pretty cool debut for a guy who turned out to be pretty good in Green Bay for the most part. Number three, I don't have a specific memory tied to it from my life, but just seeing Randall Cobb snag a perfect one-handed touchdown grab against the Bears during Aaron Rodgers' six-touchdown first half. One-handed catches are just pretty cool. Maybe a little bit more overrated now than they used to be, but still always cool when guys on your team are able to haul him in. And I think Randall Cobb, as much as any player I can remember in Packers history, just had a knack for one-handed catches. And his touchdown catch in this particular game was one of his best ever. Number two, Randall Cobb's 75-yard game winner against the Bears in week one of this past season. This was pure Randall Cobb. The initial read is not open for Aaron Rodgers. He works kind of mirroring Rodgers to get open, manages to snag a pass, and does the rest from there. Outrunning Leonard Floyd, outrunning Khalil Mack, making his way into the end zone for one of the most iconic touchdown catches in Packers history. It was better, sweet though it was, just because it was against the Bears. In 15 career games against the Bears, Randall Cobb had 64 catches for 885 yards and nine touchdowns. Those nine touchdowns really stand out because that's far more than he had against any other team in his time with the Packers. The next most on the list is the Lions with just four touchdowns. For me, this one was special. It was the first game that my wife and I got to watch together in uh, in our new house. We had just moved in on August 6th, my birthday, and uh, you know, less than a month later, we're watching Aaron Rodgers come back and beat the co- uh, beat the the Bears, uh, beat the Cowboys. Just thinking about that from memory number five there, um, in our new house, and that kind of capped off a, a long, what had been a pretty long 2018 to that point for us. That was pretty exciting to have that moment in our new house, and then to come here. And uh, record, uh, I think it was our 100th episode uh, with the Randall Cobb touchdown. So that was pretty exciting. Uh, That made the the late night very worth it there. But then, number one, you can probably guess what it was. Uh, Randall Cobb beating the Bears in 2013 to cap off Aaron Rodgers and the Packers. Kind of resurrection after Aaron Rodgers' first collarbone injury. You know the play. Fourth down. The Packers need a first down. Randall Cobb breaks deep. Aaron Rodgers navigates around Julius Peppers thanks to a block from John Kuhn and finds Randall Cobb for the touchdown. This game sticks out in my memory. I guess because to circle back to our idea about life change and things like that, because it sticks out because just 10 days earlier, Just prior to this game, uh, I had met my wife. And I guess everything changed after that. 2011, Randall Cobb is drafted. I'm just a guy in my dorm room. 2013, met the, the woman who'd become my wife. 
2018, we're in a house together. And now 2019, the Randall Cobb era is over. Uh, I guess I'll have to find a new player to mark life milestones from this point. Um, I think the thing to remember about Randall Cobb, even as we get a little bit, you know, misty-eyed talking about him as Packers fans, is that this was kind of inevitable. I think Randall Cobb knew this was coming. I think anybody really taking a a clear-eyed look at this probably figured that something like this was going to happen. Um, that doesn't make it less sad when an era ends because these eras do end. And I would encourage you, I guess, just to not get too cynical. Uh, don't be the sort of fan who who is uh, completely divorced from feeling anything when players who have been here for any, any amount of time get cut or, or move on to new things. You know, this is, it's okay, I think, to to get a little bit emotional about things like that. Yeah, ultimately, if you think too hard about any of us, it's a little bit silly. But so what? I mean, there's plenty of things in our life to be less than a lot more serious about, I guess. Um, sports doesn't have to be one of them. You can you can overrate it if you want, or you can get too emotional about it if you want. That's fine. Uh, nobody's going to think less of you if you uh, are sad because one of your players moves on. That's life. Um, we can allow ourselves a little bit of that. What is the deal, though, with cap space? Um, hard transition into that one. We got to talk about this for a little bit because I think Tom Silverstein stepped in it a little bit this week. He tweets out Monday, I'm starting to hear the Packers aren't in good salary cap shape as reported. Because of cap charges that weren't previously calculated, multiple sources say they are very tight after their most recent spending spree. One source estimated it was close to $5 million under. We'll see. I'm not sure he's right about that, and he's kind of walked it back since then. But let's try to figure out how he got to that point. The NFLPA reported on January 31st that the Packers would roll over $7.8 million in cap space. That gives them, heading into free agency, about $35 million to work with. How did the Packers whittle down that cap space? Well, they signed Zadarius Smith, whose cap charge for year one ended up being about $7 million. That takes him down to 27 and three quarters. Adrian Amos's contract is worth $5.9 million against the cap this year. That gets him down to just under 22. Preston Smith is uh, going to count $6 million against the cap. That's just under $16 million. And Billy Turner is four and a quarter, so the Packers are down to $11.6 million. When they cut Nick Perry, they gained back about $3.3 million. That keeps the, uh, takes them up to $14.9 million. As of now... After signing Mercedes Lewis and and everything else that the Packers have done, they are at just about $13.9 million. That is, however, not the whole story. Because the Packers are going to have some money set aside for signing rookie contracts. They've also got to factor in the Mercedes Lewis stuff, the Geronimo Allison stuff. And all that. But even so, even if those contracts and those kind of budgeting for rookie contracts, four to five million, something like that, even if that's all true, how do you get to seven or to five million dollars? Well, unless there's something that nobody knows about going on, I think it's most probable that Tom Silverstein just forgot about the cap space rollover. 
I think somebody that he talked to forgot about the $7.8 million that the Packers have to work with. Because if you take that out, it does get the Packers down to about $5 million in cap space, which would be a problem. Because once you sign your your rookies this year, that puts you in a bit of a, a, a tough situation. So that made me think that we should do a little bit of conversation about the cap. What do you need to know about the salary cap? I think it comes down to about five things. Because let's get a couple of things straight. First, the cap is more complex than anybody who's in the media really, really, I think, can confidently explain. There are people who do a really good job of figuring out how contracts are going to work against the cap and where all this stuff fits in. But you have to remember, everybody's operating off of secondhand numbers. Even the people who are reporting this from sources, there's one step removed there. They're not getting it straight from the horse's mouth. They're not reading these contracts straight up. And you should you know, bear this in mind with a little bit of caution then. Bear all of this information in mind with a little bit of caution then. Not everybody is dealing with the same amount of information. And even the websites out there that have this information, great as they are, are a little bit imperfect. That's the first thing I want to talk about. If you want to learn more about this, two websites, spottrack.com and overthecap.com, are your closest friends. But they are not perfect. And buyer beware on those on the information that they have because it's up to you to interpret that information correctly. Let's turn to the case of one Colin Cowherd who reported breathlessly last season that Aaron Rodgers had a contract opt-out available to him following the 2018 season. He encouraged Rodgers to take it, to put the screws to the Packers so they would really have to pony up and sign him to a deal that he thought Rodgers was worth. Problem is, none of that was true. And we talked about it at the time. Colin Cowherd was dead wrong about Aaron Rodgers having an opt-out in his contract. What happened? Well, he misread the SpotTrack.com possible out phrase on their breakdown of Aaron Rodgers' contract. The possible out referred to the team, not to Aaron Rodgers. SpotTrack had the information on there to show a point at which the Packers could have gotten out of Aaron Rodgers' contract with minimal damage, and it just so happened to line up with Colin Cowherd being mad at the Packers for some reason, as he always seems to be, at the end of the 2018 season. He encouraged Rodgers to opt out for that reason. The problem was he didn't have one. It was the Packers who could have gotten off the hook if they wanted to. Of course, they didn't. The point is, you have to be sure you are interpreting this correctly and be very careful. Secondly, you should know that the Packers and the NFL as a whole, I guess, are not really dealing with a hard cap. The NFL salary cap is consistently referred to as a a hard cap. And while it is probably a harder cap than the NBA or even what Major League Baseball has now, the way that they calculate things, which I don't even fully understand and don't really care to. Um, but the, the NFL doesn't have a hard cap. In fact, salary salary cap at all is kind of a misnomer. A salary is what you are actually paid. And the salary cap doesn't actually reflect what people are actually getting paid. Between bonuses and cash flow and things like that, Salaries are actually different than than cap charges. 
which is the real important number for salary cap considerations. And those numbers are really malleable. You can move numbers around, convert things into whatever, from salary into bonus, bonus into salary. However you want to do it, you can create space. Eventually, it's all going to have to count against your cap some way. That's where it turns into a hard cap. But it's not like you sign a guy to a 10-year, $100 million contract and he gets he counts $10 million per year against against the cap. It would be great if things worked that way. It'd be a lot simpler for everybody involved. But no, that's not how things work. So it's not really a hard cap. And the amount of the contract is not super important. And that brings us to the third point. The amount of the contracts don't really matter because a lot of the money isn't going to be guaranteed to these players anyway. What does really matter, though, is cap charges. And cap charges end up meaning a lot more than the average per year that you always see referred to in in articles about what a guy signed for, the APY. APY is mostly voodoo because, well, you just take the, the case of Zadarius Smith with the Packers. He signs a big year. I think it ends up being a four-year for $52 or $54 million contract. Probably should have looked that up before I referred to it, but I'm kind of shooting from the hip here. He's going to get like 32 to $34 million in the first two years of that contract. And when you divide out $52 million by four years, it ends up being $16.5 million per year. But he's not getting $16.5 million per year. And his contract isn't going to break out, break down to count against the cap $16.5 million for a year. You really got to pay close attention to what those cap char- charges actually are. And that's where those websites like SpotTrack and Over the Cap become crucially important. Okay? So keep in mind that cap charges are always going to be more important than average per year. Fourthly, the cap is going up and teams should schedule deals accordingly. This is the reason I'm less concerned than most, I think, about the Packers putting off a large chunk of what they're paying these new guys into future years. The cap is going to go up, and it's going to look better against their caps. cap as a result. These contracts are. Smart teams schedule contracts in accordance with cap growth. The Minnesota Vikings, I think, realized this earlier than most. They signed a lot of free agents during the early 2000s, and they were able to afford a lot of them because they fit them under a growing cap. They realized the cap was going to grow, go up, and even if they paid a guy a lot, it wasn't going to hurt as much down the road because the cap would adjust. Smart teams figure that out. You can't always count on the cap going up. Like the NBA a couple of years ago, everybody was getting wild amount of number or wild amount of, of salary or wild just out of line contracts because everybody just said, oh, well, the cap goes up. And that's what they used to justify outrageous deals. You shouldn't do that, but you should still be conscious of it. Finally, and this may not be news to everybody, and I realize that some of this may not be news to you, but I think it's important to kind of get all of us on the same page. But You can actually go as deep as you want into all this by literally reading the rules about the salary cap in the collective bargaining agreement, which is available for public consumption. You just got to search 2000 NFL collective bargaining agreement and you will find the information you desire. The salary cap 
is established in Article 12, Section 6, Subsection V of the 2011 to 2020 NFL NFLPA Collective Bargaining Agreement. I shall read it to you. It is riveting stuff. Quote, the salary cap for a league year shall be the player cost amount for that league year, less projected benefits for that league year, divided by the number of clubs in the league in that league year, adjusted by any applicable true-up, provided that there shall be no true-up related to the 2011 league year, and there shall be no negative true-up related to either the 2012 or 2013 league year, end quote. You get all that? Because there's more of the same throughout all of the rest of the collective bargaining agreement. You can learn a lot, but unless you have a law degree, you will probably not understand a word of it. I still think it's cool to look into, even if I don't get any of it. Maybe you want to check it out a little bit too. While we're on this topic, and while I've got you here, let's talk about the Packers overpaying very quickly. Just want to tease ahead to a piece I've got coming out at thepowersweep.com this week, maybe tomorrow, which would be today if you're listening to this, certainly by Thursday or Friday, about the Packers potentially overpaying for these players that they've signed in free agency. I think that is the new popular narrative about the Packers, and I'm not sure it's entirely fair. Because for years and years and years, people have criticized the Packers for not doing anything in free agency. Now they do, and people are want to say, ah, they, they overpaid, they rushed to sign these guys. And that may be true. But I think when you look at the information a little bit more in depth and maybe a little bit more in context, it starts to like, make a little bit more sense. And one piece of context I would like to direct you to is just who else is going to get paid here in the very near future? Much has been made, I think, of Zadarius Smith's $16.5 million APY figure, average per year. And as I've said, that's not the be-all, end-all. But even if it was, 16.5 is going to look like peanuts here in the relatively near future. Because listen to some of these names coming down the pike here in just the next two off-seasons. Between 2020 and 2021, NFL teams are going to be doling out contracts to Demarcus Lawrence, Frank Clark, Jadavian Clowney, Robert Quinn, Dante Fowler, Joey Bosa, Leonard Floyd, and Von Miller. All of those guys are going to be free agents in the next two years. $16.5 million per year is not going to look like a whole lot. And the cap charges that the Packers are facing for Zadarius Smith and Preston Smith are not going to look like all that much. Sure, they might be higher than they should be for these two guys, but taken in context, things are going to look a lot different in the relatively near future. There's a lot more information about that coming in this piece, and I hope you check it out. Secondly, while I still have you here, there is going to be no outro music for the end of this podcast. Why will become clear in the relatively near future. For right now, I should tell you a little bit story, uh, a little tiny story about why we had that music in particular. For those of you who don't know, the song that now formerly closed out our show was called Hurricane Season by an artist called Trombone Shorty. Why that one in particular? Well, a peek behind the curtain here, both me, John, and uh, my running mate here at the Power Sweep, uh, Gary Zillavi, are big fans of both Scott Van Pelt and Ryan Rossillo of ESPN. When they had a show together, that song... Hurricane Season, was the intro to the SVP and Rosillo show. That show meant a lot to both me and Gary, and we were both sad when it went off the air because both of them went on to new things. 
having that song kind of play out our podcast was a great, great way to pay tribute to that show, something that meant a lot to both of us, and just kind of a fun nod. Plus, it's kind of a pretty cool song, too. So I will miss it. I hope you will miss it, too. But we've got good things uh, on the way in the future that kind of um, necessitate us going in a different direction there. If you are a musically inclined person, and would like to perhaps offer up some uh, music that we could use to close out the podcast, get in touch with us. If we really like it, we may work out a deal uh, where we would pay you for it. We would not want to use it without paying you for it. I don't want to do this for exposure. Exposure doesn't get anybody anything. We will never pay you an exposure. Um, But if you are a musically inclined person, let me know. I'd love to hear from you. That'd be cool to talk about. And even if we don't use it, I want to see some of the talented stuff that people out there who listen to this podcast do. That would be great. But anyway, that's all I've got for you in this particular episode. I want to thank you very much for listening. I really appreciate everybody who takes the time to download one of our episodes and tune in. If you've liked what you've heard and want to help us keep everything going, the best way to support us is by rating and reviewing on iTunes. It helps more people find the show. If you want to take your support to the next level, the most straightforward way to do that is to donate a dollar per month at patreon.com slash thepowersweep. $1 per month is enough to offset our hosting costs for this podcast and goes a long way towards helping us build the content we know you love here, both here and on thepowersweep.com. And also, do not forget to check out our great t-shirts and sweatshirts by clicking the shop link at thepowersweep.com. If you've got an idea for the show or just want to say hi, or if you've got a question about anything that we've talked about, you can reach us by clicking contact at thepowersweep.com or by reaching out on Facebook or Twitter or by emailing thepowersweep1959 at gmail.com. We appreciate everybody who takes the time to reach out. As always, every bit of feedback you give us helps us make Blue 58 and the Power Sweep better, which furthers our mission of helping everybody become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I am your host, John Meerdink. We will see you next time on Blue 58.